Constructed Criticism is sponsored by Oasis Games. MTGOasis.com is the place to get cards for your next Magic event. Try them out with code CCMTG for 15% off of your first order, and use the code WouldThatBeGood for 4% off of every order. Want to support the show directly? Head on over to Patreon.com CCMTG to check out some awesome benefits and future goals for the show. Thanks for listening, and here's this week's episode of Constructed Criticism. Hello everyone and welcome to the Constructed Criticism Network. This network is here to help you improve in Magic the Gathering at every level. From popper leagues to top 1000 mythic, we've got you covered. If you want to hear the entire network, head on over to our sponsor at purentgeo.com where you can hear each and every show, each and every week, and check out their sponsor, MDGO Traders, and tell them that the CCMTG Network sent you. Now sit back, enjoy the show, from YouTube, podcasts, and more, here's this week's episode from ConstructedCriticism.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 389th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your jolly host, Mason, joined by my two filled with Christmas cheer co-hosts and Hanukkah-loving co-host, Abe. Spencer and Abe, how you doing? Abe likes Hanukkah. Do you not have Christmas cheer? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm like a total Grinch. I, I, I've really lost. Are, are you Jewish, Abe? Yeah. Like like practicing? or Yeah, like a very big part of my life. Oh, I didn't well, know that. It was that. for a long time. I, I'm, I, I'm not like super practicing right now, but like, like uh, I'm pretty secular I, as far as Jews come. A hundred percent of my, a hundred percent of the podcasts that I am on have a Jewish co-host, and I didn't, I didn't realize that. J to C, dude, straight up, straight up, literally on the last episode of Need to Nerd, I learned how how the candles work in Hanukkah. I just assumed that you lit the next candle and then lit them all. The next time, I did not realize how it worked. Yeah, it's a whole thing. Like, at all. And, uh, you know, West informed me, so, I, you know, I got a little more culture in my life because of it. That sounds like great listening for anyone interested in expanding their horizons. It was to the end of the yeah, show. We were ta- we were talking about the yeah. holidays coming up, so, you know, if people weren't interested, they could... Before you get yeah, culture. Yeah. I just watched Curb Your Enthusiasm. Anyways. <laughs> my Hanukkah reference, for what it's worth, is like... The Maccababies episode of Rugrats. So maybe you have All better. Time. <laughs> maybe. All time great. I mean, I had a friend who was uh, practicing when I was in elementary school. I remember going to their house and lighting the candles, but I don't remember anything past that. I was like also five or six, but I have a very clear memory of like the room being dark and the candle being lit. I think that like understanding other cultures and learning about them is like a really great, always improving moment. Speaking of always improving, today we're going to be doing our Midnight Val re-review, and we're going to be always improving by looking over the set and kind of what we talked about with our first pick two set review, and going back now and kind of looking at the lessons learned and sort of giving a uh, a sunset episode to the Crimson Val uh, Midnight Hunt, because boys, I don't know if you knew this, but we are only 44 days away from Kamigawa. I bet you didn't expect me to already have the new data, but we're 44 days from Kamigawa. Wow. How exciting. Neon Dynasty is right around the corner. Previews, previews. But first, we have to do always proving that is the main point of the show, and it is my turn to be up first this time. Spencer realized I was calling him first every week last time. <laughs> yeah, lots of me. I lost it. I don't actually know, but I felt called out, so I will start things off this time. And my always improving moment is taking ownership for going last. So, no, I'm just joking. Uh, no, my whispering moment actually comes from 
making sure to like go back and double check my homework. So, you know, we come to a lot of conclusions as magic players, right? And like, you'll do testing, you'll do work and you'll come to conclusions like, Hey, I really don't think I want to be using spreading C's right now in four color control for modern. I just think, yeah, it has some good spots, but it's not what it's about right now. I'm much rather do this sort of thing and play my deck in a more reactive than tap out style way. But things change. You know, we had a whole new set release. We're going to have the last time in that example. And not only that have things changed, but the meta has shifted a little bit. We have some new decks on the block. And so while I thought that maybe that would still hold true, I went back and I played some leagues with four color control, doing a bunch of stuff I don't like to do. I, I trimmed a bunch of the stuff that I had kind of be like become Mason specials outside of reflecting pool. I still got reflecting pool out of my deck. Can't won't catch me with that card. I put in the spring seeds. I put in Teferi five and that sort of stuff. And I tried them out and just reevaluated. And some of it, I was a little higher on some of it. I was lower on than I actually was before. And it was really good though, just to be like, Hey, I came to these conclusions, but this work was done on kind of a previous version. You know, we've had a patch note since then. I got to, got to re up my game, see where we're at. And uh, that was my always improving moment. So yeah, super important to do that always. Updating your priors and, and making sure that everything's still the same before you roll in and find out it's different is, is super good. I'm going to take always improving next so that Spencer gets to go last and feel the pressure off. And my always improving this week uh, actually came from something I did with Spencer over the weekend, which was uh, a little bit of a hammer coaching session we recorded for the YouTube. I don't know if it's up yet or if it'll be up soon. But, uh, I, I told Fernando, uh, our editor, that just to like, you know, get to whatever he can. Yeah. So, so hopefully that'll be up soon. Um, I think that, you know, that's going to be a really good resource for people who want to get their feet wet uh, about Hammer and kind of like what I what I offer as a coach. I think it'll be really awesome. But in doing that and preparing for that, and partially also, I started playing Runeterra with my brother. He like had I got him to start playing the game because he'd been playing a lot of Hearthstone and really enjoying it, but wanting something a little different. And so I told him to check out Runeterra and we did his first draft ever grappling with the like huge amount of prior experience that I draw on to make decisions. And like, instead of taking that as something that's just always there and kind of reminding myself that that's something I need to articulate and define better sometimes to, to help people. Um, there were like times where I was taking lines playing with Spencer where like to me and my brain, it was intuitive, but getting the words together and why it is that that was the intuitive thing for me to do into a thought and to express that to Spencer is, is kind of like a big challenge of coaching and a big challenge of helping someone improve. And in doing so is a really great way to, you know, kind of find flaws in that ingrained, those ingrained patterns that you kind of rely on. And also just to, just to make sure you're still in touch with them and that things are still the same. I, uh, just over both games, both in Magic and and in Runeterra, um, kind of felt like it made me really appreciate the things that I did understand and also have me shed new light on things that I maybe uh, didn't understand as well as I thought I did. So, so I, I want to talk about humility um, and understanding humility in the game of Magic. It's a really game-changing card. It's like... Yeah, that yeah, everything's a one-one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's really hard. I saw you, you, you. It's your moment, not mine. My bad. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> I, I so we. I don't think that Abe or I knew what to expect from like what was going to happen when like we turned on the camera, and you know there were moments where Abe was like, "Yeah, I here here's what I would do. Here's why that were so different than what I would do." And then, like, I, I talk about in the video, but there were like. At the end of the video, I talk about like three defining things that I learned, but there were also moments where like I was like, "Hey Abe, why why didn't we do this?" And there was one specific moment where Abe was like, 
oh yeah, that was way better. I just was on autopilot mode and didn't even think about that. that thank you for calling me out. And it just kind of reminds me of like the times that I have done coaching. It, no matter who you're playing magic with, there's so much to magic. Or I actually think that this episode will actually come out before the common knowledge episode for what it's worth, just because of how their schedule is lined up. But like one of the things that we talked about is um is Smash Brothers ultimate on that because of Christian saying that like playing Smash Brothers and talking about improving was like one of the ways he's improved the most at Magic with me is just talking about improvement. And in that, we talked about uh, a player in, in that game. His name is MK Leo. And for, for context for people, MK Leo is the best Smash Bros. Ultimate player of, of all time. You know, the game's been out for three, almost four years. And he has actually never taken less than third place. It just actually ever in, in every tournament. And the thing is, is like... It, I talked about how you you go from this game, right, that has zero variances, 100% skill-based, to this game that is not like that. I have no idea how to play Hammer Time. I have actually none. And Abe has a ton of experience. But Abe, knowing the way that magic worked, was still willing to consider a line that I said and question himself and if his line was wrong. And we came to the conclusion that his line was wrong. And it was like a moment where, like, Am I starting to understand this deck? Is Abe learning while teaching? Which, by the way, is really common for Magic players. Putting both of ourselves in a position where we're not trying to go into autopilot mode, where we're not trying to just do the fastest combo we play possible and like kind of not just go through the motions. And one of the things that's really special about Abe's list that you'll see in the video is he has a lot more double white spells uh, than I think most Hammer Time lists. And it actually makes the way you sequence really different. And really hard. At the end of the video, I talk about how different it is sequencing with a deck like this than with a deck like Affinity that has, in all honesty, like a lot of similar cards and a similar game plan sometimes. It was kind of humbling to both myself in understanding like your experience with Affinity, a deck that you've played a ton of in Modern, does not one-for-one -one translate. And I also seen humility from Abe in this moment of coaching this person that's literally never touched this deck uh was refreshing and i think that like it goes to show that like when you're when you get the opportunity to play with somebody with similar goals to you you should do that you should take that uh, i did a coaching session with um beyond the metagame hosts both of them it was really funny because even in that session, I'm like really bad at Smash for those who don't know. Like I'm like compared to the players who play, and even in that session, he's like, "Dude, you are so good at up smashing with Wolf on time. It's insane. I actually don't know how to beat that, and like I can't beat it without just getting away from you." And it, it's those kind of moments where you have in whether it's coaching, whether it's a matchup versus matchup. Like there's sometimes where you got to play to your strengths. There's sometimes where you've got to learn something new, but it was really cool to see the the humility from somebody who's probably registered 300 plus hours with a deck, willing to listen to me, but also teach me those 300 plus hours. I didn't think about it as like a moment of humility. I really just, um, I want the coaching that I provide to be, I always feel like you can learn from someone. And, you know, I always feel like I have things that I can, you know, hopefully impart on other people and like everything in life. And so 
you know, the fact that that was a moment we got to we got to have in that session was was really awesome. And like, you know, I'm, I'm glad you appreciate it. And I don't want to make anything big out of it. You know, it's just uh, it's just part of part of playing magic and trying to learn and grow is that you'll make mistakes and, and identify them. And so that's going to do it for the Oscar segment of the show. Let's hop straight, though into our main topic which is a re-review of the midnight hunt crimson vow standard as we talked about a bunch on the show in the past these sets came out in a very short time frame of each other there wasn't a lot of time in order to do the typical re-review of midnight hunt by itself so we decided to combine them together since they you know they are both in a shroud or whatever and we'll kind of talk about both of them here and kind of how we go through things but basically if you haven't listened to one of our set reviews before and you're new to the show The way we do it is we have four categories, and we pick two cards for each category. And today we're going to be looking back over two of those categories to talk about them. The two categories we're looking over are sleepers and hits. Hits, self-explanatory, those are going to be cards that you expect to be big players in the format. Things are going to impact them. Sleepers, as you might guess, are cards that are people not really talking about a whole bunch that we think are going to be big players. So basically, you would think of a sleeper as like, hey, this might be like a hit or a hit light that no one is talking about. And these happen every set and happens every time with the Magic set. There's always, you know, oh, there are no good cards. There's nothing going on. Unless it's Ixlon, that's not true. So (laughs) we, we get to get back over and talk about them all here today. And part of that process is us kind of going back through our lists of what we had before. So Abe, do you want to kind of start us off here with your midnight hunt lists? Yeah. So, uh, for midnight hunt, my hits were consider the, you know, better opt or whatever. And, uh, Lear disciple of the drowned to some contention from my co-hosts and my sleepers were hungry for more and arcane infusion, which are cards that I thought had some potential. And then I would be surprised if anyone listened to the podcast knew them by name. So I, um, I want to be clear about something. All that I said was at the very end of the episode that specifically Reckless Stormseeker seemed better than Lear to me. That is the only negative thing I said about Lear. Can I share a little behind the scenes? <laughs> I mean, sure, but I I, I don't think... Where, where after we finished recording, you said that card is atrocious. I stand by what I said at the moment. <laughs> That's funny, because you said basically the same thing on the podcast. Yeah, I just listened to it. I am. I'm going to talk about what I learned from that today. That's the whole point okay. of this episode. So, yeah, so, so those were those are my I'm glad I'm glad I could get that out there. I don't have to live a lie anymore. I remember saying that it was a it seemed like a five minute do nothing. I don't remember saying that card seems atrocious. It was a, it was a word it's analogous to bad. Okay. Because you were yeah, because you were definitely like, hey, what were you saying? Yeah. <laughs> At the end of it, dude, and that I was like, amen, be because, Spencer. <laughs> because we turned off that podcast like right anyway. Uh, first of all, yeah. I think your hits are gas. What are your sleepers? Uh, my sleepers, which Curious. I said, were, uh, were Hungry for More and Arcane Infusion, which are cards that I doubt anyone would know what they did by name. So, <laughs> so funny. i got to leave that in the show. Abe said them, and then he's like, I doubt anyone knows their magic cards. And then Spencer's like, yeah, but what no were your word. sleepers? <laughs> like, did you say them? Because I actually don't remember. That's gas. Like, they are I... very forgettable uh, cards missed. I, you know. I was a believer in um, there being potential for an aggressive deck to use Hungry for More. Maybe there will be. Maybe not. Sure. I, I like Hellspark. Oh, is that – is is Hungry for More the blue the one? Hellspark Elemental card. No, Hungry no, for More is the, the red, oh. red Hellspark Elemental with lifelink. Okay. It's a sorcery that makes a 3-1 lifelink that died at the end of the turn. And then Arcane Infusion is the impulse that finds a uh, finds an instant sorcery only and has flashback. And I thought that if decks wanted to play enough spell lands to make this card really just be very close to impulse, I thought it would be really good. But it just turned out that 
you didn't really have the time and, and the format didn't shape up for, for a card like that to be good. So well, also Lear's dominance, right? Like, like Lear yeah. being such a big player in the format makes it not as important where if maybe Lear wasn't a card, Arcane Infusion would be a card you see as a one of or something in the, yeah. the turn. Leaving specs. leaving your man up is so punished when there's so many things that were just Mason, what were your hits? My hits were Reckless Stormseeker and then Moon Rage Slash. And then my two sleepers were Briarbridge Tracker and Storm the Festival. So um, I think all of your cards but one are basically like pretty spot on. What happened with Moon Rage Slash? You know, honestly, I've looked at it a little bit for Alchemy too, because you know, in Alchemy the, the werewolf decks got a big boost. They're really strong. I think there's just not a lot of need for it in the format. I, I think that like the, the green decks have a lot of X4s. And the other decks that go low to the ground go wide pretty quickly outside the mirrors. And then there's like the whole awkwardness of like actually getting it to cost one. So it's a card that, you know, like if if I could do things different, it would maybe be like a, a, I don't know, maybe maybe it's going to turn into a sleeper in time. But it just hadn't quite played out where it's like needed or whatever. And I, I think part of the thing too, where like these cards not coming together for at least some of them is that the aggro decks are like not good if you're not monocolor. And I think I overestimated how much decks are going to need Faceless Haven. Um, and part of that is because of cards like Fading Hope, which we'll get more into in a little bit. There's something to be said for like Day Night when Midnight Hunt was uh, was previewed. We didn't know how that would play. We had a sense of how it would play with um, the Innistrad Werewolves and like how those patterns were but but it's way different it's, not, it's so it, much it's different. way different and we there's no, there's no real frame of reference so i you know the, active the player non-active player for day night is a big difference in that card yeah. like the way those cards play out and also it turns a little awkward like it's only lightning bolt after like turn three because you can only really have it be night on turn three so the times where you need it to be good just doesn't really feel like it lined up did, no, no, did no, you, i was just gonna say and that, that plus too many x force just makes it really hard sell yeah, I think the rest of your cards, like Reckless, Stormseeker, Bread, uh, Briar Bridge, Tracker, and Storm the Festival, are all, like, super reasonable, like, good cards. Like, they're, they're all good. Yeah, yeah, those were all staples of decks in the first two, three, four weeks of the format. There was a lot of Storm the Festival mid-range decks, kind of a, an arms race there of trying to Storm the Festival into the biggest stuff. I remember engaging in that some before, like, Epiphany was yeah. found to be the top end, and, like, uh, a lot of those were bets on Chariot being as good as it was, so... I, I actually think uh, Briar, really Briarbridge good. Tracker is still underplayed. Like, I, I've been uh, messing around with Mono Green and Standard again. I think there's some argument to continuing to play some number of a Briarbridge Tracker over, your, for example, like your fourth troll or whatever. I think it kind of depends. And then, like, if you're going to play Gruel, for example, like, if you can't actually play the troll, Briarbridge Tracker just becomes this thing that you get to crew with without losing, like, that, that takes up those slots, so... It's kind of gone away a bit as like alchemy's devolved a little bit, but it, it, it's also seeing a little bit of play there. So that's a card that I expect to like not see more play in this standard year. But when rotation happens, I expect Briarbridge Tracker stock to go to the moon. I think that card gets to a the lot moon. When, uh, the rest of the leaves. Woo! Speaking of to the moon, what are your hits and sleeper, Spencer? Yeah, so I think that my hits are actually pretty good, and I will explain why because one of them sees basically no play. Uh, we'll talk about the one that I, I think I specifically said in the podcast, this was for Historic, and it immediately saw play in Historic after I said it, which is Delver of Secrets. I think this card, like, does a lot of different things. Uh, we saw this card top eight, some kind of event in Standard with, um, it's not good anymore, but there was, like, this green-blue deck that played Dragon Scale Elite or whatever. We have seen multiple decks with Delver of Secrets plus Dragon 
Dragon Rage Channeler, yeah. We like that just have done well in Historic. I think Delver Secrets just slots into some number of decks in that format. I'm not surprised. That's what I said in the podcast. It's it's fine. Like Delver of Secrets is just a fine card to enter Historic. It's gonna need, like I said on the podcast, more cards and a specific format to be good in standard. We are not in that format. We actually were in that format for a minute in standard, which is why that deck top aided. Where like if all you were trying to beat were like the mono green deck and the epiphany deck, that blue green deck was actually insane. Like it was actually really good, but we're not there anymore. That's, that's not in the format anymore. Delver probably won't see standard play again. I am not giving up on my bloodthirsty adversary pick. I actually think this card is still a hit. Uh, I, I was playing it in historic today with results. They are doing red dirty in standard right now, fam. I don't know if anybody's noticed how dirty they're doing it. But, like, this card has no support because, like, if you're going to play a red deck, you're, like, playing these other mid-range decks that, like, want treasure or other stuff like this. And this card wants to be in a very different style of deck where you're playing a lot of spells instead of a lot of creatures that, like, you're playing off of treasures. This card, I have played a ton of it. I have played it in Gruul. I have played it in Mono Red. The, The card is, in fact, very good. The problem is the support system around it and the spells. And, like, it's kind of like Delver of Secrets in that way, right? Like, uh, one of the first decks that I actually built uh, for the standard format was both of these cards combined. One of the our listeners uh, actually hit Mythic with it after I did that episode. So it's not like it's unreasonable. It's just, like, they're doing red dirty. I don't know. Does this is, just... is going to sound like a meme question. But have you played with the card in Alchemy? Because I was very surprised. I was watching some friends of mine do the uh, Decathlon events over the weekend. And there was a mono red deck that I thought played that deck, played that card to a really, really... I actually uh, lost... I, I, I have not played it in Alchemy, but I lost to it in Alchemy this week. Okay, yeah. Yeah, like the mono red deck in Alchemy looked looked really solid. And it definitely felt like a good fit there because you were playing like... Uh, yeah. Chandra Dress to Kill and there you had a lot more burn... Yeah, the two, the two mana deal to exile the top stuff is actually really good with yeah, this card. Yeah, that card is yeah. so insane. It, it, like, really lets you pop off in a lot of ways. Especially especially because, like, the, the alchemy deck just has an ability to have a little bit more mana the way the deck is built. So I don't hate my hit, but it won't be my hit moving forward. My sleepers are Sunset Revelry, which I think is still a sleeper. We have not seen a blue-white control deck, which is the thing that I was excited about with this card. Um, my other sleeper, I just missed right on the podcast. I thought the card did something different. Unnatural Moonrise. That's that's just not what the card does. We can move on. I want to talk about Lee real quick before we move on. Because I have a hot take about Lee. I'm not sure if that card stays playable as, like, the format gets bigger. I, I'm, I'm serious about that card. Like, I, I think... Like, the more I've played with that card, my, my, my I've had, like, the, I believe it was called the Dunning-Kruger effect with it, where it's been, like, high, low, high, but in the reverse where I was low on the card, wow, I'm super high on the card, wow, I'm lower on the card. And I think part of that is the format growing in size, where things like Fading Hope have been such, like, a, a huge boon and benefit to Lear. And, like, and honestly, all, all the blue-red decks. Like, having a, a one-mana way to essentially interact and have a removal spell with how the blue red decks play out. Uh, the, the fading hope actually just like is essentially one because when they win the game, they win in these such a big and over the top fashion that unsummon yeah, is like matters bit- most of them. So yeah, I, have, exactly. I have a thought on this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the blue black lists that I've been posting in our Patreon, but they actually play blood, uh, the one mana black removal spell 
in place of some of those fading hopes. Uh, oh, blood sheets are shady. Yeah, and and it actually has like fixed a lot of the problems that I had with Lear originally, where like I'm able to kill anything uh, late game if I untap yeah. with it. I do think that like that's a that's a really valid way to feel about it, and I think that there's a lot to what you're saying, Mason. Like you know, we've seen cards like uh, Shipbreak Horror uh, enter the format in Vow and kind of muscle in on the space that Lear's taking. I don't know. I still think it's kind of hard for me to imagine a world where Lear completely disappears. I think that card, as much as it is bol- it was in the time where it was so dominant, bolstered by the success of Fading Hope and how important that card was to reaching the endgame inevitability of Alrin's Piffney and stuff in the format, the card pool might adapt to a point where it's too much of a cost to get your removal spells back again. But as long as there's cheap removal in the format, I think it's it's hard for me to imagine that card not being good. Like just just because the threats are getting better and cards like fading hope will get worse i don't think means that the card will get worse it just means that as long as the removal is keeping up and this is the kind of game plan you can have i think i hate to be uh, that dude but like if fading board. hope gets worse quote unquote it means that like it, it makes me feel like delver the like the delver bloodthirsty adversary deck gets better i think the reason fading hope is good is because all the ways you win are with chunky creatures that aren't right. Here. Right, that's my point. Right. right, like if you're saying that that part becomes bad, and you need a more tempo-driven game plan, it just changes. Yeah, I would fear that fading hope being bad kind of means that Delver. Yeah, I would, Delver I would expect Delver too, right? to need that sort of card, but maybe they don't. So here's the thing: is like they use it like in my head they use it as a tool. Right, like they they use like things like shock and stuff like that instead. I don't know. It's it's hard though because like one of the reasons that I think that that blue green deck that we mentioned earlier gets so much worse is how good mono white got. And it's like you're mm-hmm. just under me. Like I actually just can't afford to be this like fading hope BS deck. Yeah, I think yeah, that's definitely. part of the reason we see mono white do so well at times because it does dodge cards like fading hope. Right. Like that sort of stuff. Right. Which is why I added that, that uh, blood thirst or blood chiefs thirst to the, the blue black deck is like these fading hope suck against mono white. Like you actually just have to do something else. Yeah. I I think if blood chiefs thirst kills stuff for one mana, that's true. Or two mana in the case of Thalia. Uh, Vashina pyromancer. Like that's a card that I imagine if it was in standard things would look very different. Like, Having those sort of things would be really good, I think. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things, too, where it's like maybe as time goes on, it's going to go down, like in how, how impactful it is. And then yeah. when rotation happens, all these cards do stay. So it really depends on how like low to the ground the format goes. Because right now, all the decks are kind of mid-rangey. And like even the white deck at times plays out kind of mid-rangey. Mm-hmm. And so having a card like Lear is really doable. But like Spencer said, like... The mono red decks don't really exist, and so like, they don't. The They're just exist. bad. I mean, the mono red dragons deck in alchemy is pretty good, but like mm-hmm. that's that's just a mid range deck. Yeah, and it, it, it has a problem with fading hope too, right? Like the the perpetual nature of that one card changes things, but it it is a really weird place to be. All right, Abe, do you want to pick us up with the crimson vow cards? Yeah. So my my vow hits were valorous stance and hopeful initiate. I was really betting big on like mono white being a deck that came to tier one and, and kind of moved up a leg uh, in the metagame. And I thought these cards were, were definitely a part of it. I think training is a super good mechanic. It, it feels like both these cards have, have kind of made uh, a pretty lasting impact. Well, they, both of them are not in mono white anymore, Abe. They don't play these cards anymore? No. I'm exposed. 
to be fair, they're wrong, and these cards are great, but they're a lot... I mean, some of them will still play Violator Sands to the sideboard. Some of them will use Hopeful Initiate as a one-drop, depending on the list. But, like, these are not staples, and they should be. You were talking earlier about the, like, Exile builds with, um, like, Stonehaven Familiar and stuff, I'm assuming is what you're talking about? It just depends on how many one-drops the decks want to play, right? And what their split will look like. But, like, I am personally not a fan of the Exile builds. I think I think that you're specifically better against the Mirror. You also have some, some, some game against Mono Green, but I think that, like, every Mono White deck is actually favored against Mono Green secretly. Uh, if, if you just build your deck to beat it. Yeah, I, I think that both of these cards are complete hits. Valorous Stance was actually a card that I forgot was in Crimson Vow until you said something on the podcast. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm like all in on Mono White. I think Valorous Stance also shows up sometimes in like um, Jeskai builds of the Epiphany decks to answer various four toughness creatures. And uh, and also I think opposing Hallbreaker Horrors and stuff and like Protect Leers. Just has a little bit, of, little bit of utility there, and is very splashable. So I, I feel pretty safe in that one, having having played out pretty okay. I'm gonna have a hot take about Valorous Stance later, but I actually think that like as the formats grow, we talked about some cards that were getting worse as the formats grow. Valorous Stance is one I think gets better as the formats grow. And then my sleepers were Cobbled Lancer and Thirst for Discovery, both kind of uh, blue cards in a shell that I don't think is quite there yet, but. I stand by both of them being pretty I, th- I think Thirst has still seen play, right? Like, the, I've seen blue lists that play Thirst. It's harder, though, because of the way that, like, the blue decks worked out where they were playing uh, Unexpected Windfall. The, if you were playing other versions, it, it, Thirst for Discovery can make an impact. That might be something I'd be willing to try in, like, blue-black for what it's worth. Is Like, that's one of the decks I'm really high on, Stone Standard. Yeah, if, if Counter Magic gets a little better... Uh, just overall in the format, then Thirst for Discovery is awesome because you're probably going to be playing cancels and this three-mana draw spell is really good, but it is just a powerful draw spell. I think I think it's got a lot of chops. So my hits, I think, were spot on. Uh, Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, and Uvenwald Oddity. I think both these cards are... I said on the podcast that Uvenwald Oddity would take spots away from Chariot, and it did. Leads me to believe that I was right. <laughs> like, it may only be a two of, but like... I think even at the, the Pro Tour, right? Like, they were three Chariots, two of Mold Oddities. Like, just... I didn't watch the Pro Tour. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think Oddity does this really cool thing where, like, Monogreen really does have a problem with getting flooded. Like, despite the fact that you've got these Ranger classes and these other things that, like, have this flood protection, you need more of it. I think it's your one of your sleepers, or it might even be one of your hits, too, Mason. That's uh, my hit, yeah. Yeah, I, I just think that, like... You know, right now we live in a world where Chariot and Standard is still busted and like you only have room for 74 drops, but it legitimately changed the way that I built my mono green decks. Uh, so, for example, like I don't play for Mammoth anymore. I actually play some number of the Floralhedron because like that's just how good that card is. And then Thalia is just as annoying as I said it would be on the podcast. I lost to Thalia three times today. I think the card is complete BS and has made standard substantially worse. Also, the other, the other thing is like, they already had a bunch of tax cards. I think I posted a taxes standard list in our discord. I was like, if you want to make people upset, just play this. People sent me pictures of them getting mythic with it. Like Thalia is BS. It's a terrible design. I can't believe it's in standard. It is a total hit. It is very good. 
I played it a ton. I played a ton of mono white, but like when you start putting one, one counters on your freaking Thalia from whether it's your flashback, put a one, one counter or whether it's your two drop that like puts a one, one counter every turn. Thalia's busted. I, I think my hits are great. Uh, my yeah. sleepers. Uh, yeah. Volatile there. arsonist. Others, you know. This card sees historic play. It's the standard play. It's his play all over the place. Uh, if you have not played with this card and you always play the other versions of this card, whether it be, uh, you know, Goldspan Dragon or other five drops, this card is really good. Yeah, what, I, what deck plays in a Historic? I, I lost to it. I, I lost it. to it in the Mono Red Historic that Abe and I were talking about earlier. The deck that oh. plays the other, the Bloodthirsty Adversary, it plays yeah. two of these as its five drop over Goldspan Dragon. Glorybringer? Oh, it's Glorybringer and Historic. You're talking, you're talking about Alchemy. Do, do you mean alchemy or historic? Because I, I haven't seen the card in historic, but I could believe it. I'm pretty sure it was historic because I was playing the mono red mirror in historic. Uh, okay, I don't know why they're playing this over Glorybringer. Then. That must have been in addition to Glorybringer. Maybe they are like. Here's really the thing. Here's the thing about this card. Well, uh, let me let me let me go let me go into this card. Like when I when I talked about this card on the podcast, I actually got two messages that like poo pooed on this card, and I'm like I. I don't know what you're talking about. This card has haste and evasion and like can ETB basically kill something. It does everything a good magic card does. And I still think it's a sleeper. Like if it's ever nighttime when you cast this card, like your opponent loses the game. Like they actually just don't, they don't, they don't come back from that in any creature mirror. That being said, it has a lot of competition. It's a five drop. And, and I understand that part. But I think it was a good sleeper pick. My last card is uh, Dorothea, Vengeful Victim, is my other sleeper. The blue-white deck fell off hard. Whether it was blue-white Tempo, blue-white Delver, like there, there's just not a blue-white aggressive deck that wants this card right now. I'm not giving up on this card because of like the you know the theory of words that Case and I talked about on this show so many times. The theory of words falls apart pretty quickly when every card has 2,000 words on it. Yeah, your theory of words doesn't hold up the fire design standards. It's problem, really true, right? right? Like, I actually thought about doing an episode about how fire changes the theory of words, but I, I do still think this card like has some some legs. It just has to be in the right the right deck and the right format. But it is not this format. Yeah. Let's just be clear. <laughs> in case anyone's wondering, it's not this one. Yeah, I'll be curious to see what that card's history is like in a year and a half from now when it rotates. That that is what I'm most curious about. I, I, I you know, it's hard, right? Because like you would think that this would put the kind of pressure that you want on some of the decks in the format, but the problem is, is like, does it do it better than something else? And does is blue white the color combination to beat the decks trying to beat the decks you're trying to beat? Yes, yeah, sir. It's hard for a mid range deck to exist with the way the format is right now. Uh, and I think that's where, like, something where this can play offense or defense, pressuring the right kinds of decks, like just getting your chunk in for four and then being an aura, or trading off or holding down the ground to give you time to develop to where you're ahead enough to play this aura that kind of, like, closes the game quickly. It, it's just not in the right place. I, I do think the card has a lot of chops, though. It, it's definitely on, on raid a card I could see one. Yeah. Very, in various kinds of matchups that have existed over Magic Sister. Definitely times where I'd be like, yeah, two mana, four, four always going to trade with something and then I'll have this value. It reminds me of like a lot of, for what it's worth. It reminds me of like a lot of four mana cards that were like good on rate, did something good format. Didn't work out for them. 
and it could be because the total cost of this card is like five mana, right? Where like, that's why it adds up to like that kind of similar vein. Cause you kind of split that cost end up with around four mana equity, but yeah, it, it is, it is not good. What were you going to say, Mason? Cause I think the cards too much work is the problem. The, I think that could be true. Format where you, you can, you actually have to go through, the, you have to jump through all these hoops to get this value. And that is too much for, I think a lot of formats. And I actually think there's a lot of things in this format that would make this card good outside of Lear. You know, if, if Lear or something like that gets banned or Alvarez, or just as an example, like this card would be really good in alchemy in theory, but it just doesn't do enough. You know what I mean? Um, it, so. It's it's funny you say that because like my thought the other day is that the thing this thing is missing is good mana. Like I would love this card in like a Jeskai Delver deck or like a like some kind of three color tempo deck. Let, let's say that we want that to be Naya, or, or I guess it has to be Bant or Jeskai, basically, right? Or, like, the only options. Mm -hmm. And those those are rough spots right now. Like, there's not good Bant mana. There's not good Jeskai mana. There's the cards we, to support that. And, and not I, for casting a blue-white spell on turn two, right? Right, Slow exactly. Strong, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the pathways are strong, but they're not good for casting multiple different blips early on. It's just... Yes, they're good the right, for... Not the right they're good... Like, if I want to build a just a control deck, I probably have the mana for that. No, so I, I'm just thinking about the card, and I was thinking, I don't know if I want to play Boros Charm. And it's essentially Boros Charm in an aggressive deck, right? Like, it's Boros Charm with Flashback. I think it's I think it's a little bit better than Boros Charm with Flashback, right? Because like it plays another avenue in the main deck than Boros Charm does. I also don't want to go too deep into this card. I kind of agree with Abe where sure. it's like a it has the chops, but this is mm -hmm. this is not the format for it. But yeah, I also like the format you... where like I feel good if I have a deck where I feel good getting in for four with this thing and then doing the other thing with it sometimes and sometimes trading off with a creature and then like, I don't know, Ojitai's command countering something and bringing this sure. back to like keep the battlefield stable for myself. Those kind of situations. And this card could do great, but I, those just aren't the situations in the format. I think, I think I that leads think into what Mason like, said though, yeah. right? Where like the work, like it, you don't have the time to put yeah. in the work for this card. Yeah. I think that's true for a lot of cards in standard, by the way, it's actually one of the more surprising things that Lear is worth putting the time into. I think it is telling that the card can spark so much conversation without very clear definitive like good and or bad you know what i mean i think a lot of i think a lot of cards have the potential to be good have these kind of conversations to follow them up whether cards like hobbled lancer or whatever and this book's a card like doesn't really get as much attention right well let, I, th I think that's something to to note about it uh my hit was wash away and open world oddity open oddity we already talked about that's the mooser um i will say that it is good in the green deck now the green deck has changed which i did have this? I said on the show that, like you know, I I would not play more than one of them in the old green deck, and the new green deck has adapted accordingly. Wash away has done really, really well in the blue decks as a way to answer Alrens in the mirror, and has been like you know a pivotal sideboard card, and has been like better cancel in those decks for the most part. So, yeah, can I can kinda, I touch on Wash Away really quick? Yeah, hit me. Yeah, uh, this is this is something that uh, we talked about. I've got the group of people playing Standard at Oasis right now, and. Washaway is a really interesting card where I think that like if you're going to play a cancel effect, especially in a format with Lear, this is the one you want to play because once Lear hits the battlefield, this card is completely dead. So you want opportunities where the card is really good before Lear hits the battlefield. 
and that's that's really important. Obviously, once Lear hits the battlefield, the, the card just goes away. But like, uh, if you look at the first list that I posted for blue black in the Discord, I had a one one split between this and the uh, the foretell version, the foretell cancel. Def don't play the foretell cancel. This card's just better. Um, and the number of times where the one mana version of this spell comes up is immense in this format. Like it happens a lot. Uh, my sleepers are kind of the same story of the the four four we were talking about earlier. It's dig up in headless rider. It's just not worth the, the effort. The format's in a place where mid range decks are very hostile to right now. So I think like dig up isn't very good, and headless rider needs some more support if it's going to be there. But it's also kind of a mid range card. Hard. They're just a lot of work and, and a lot of cards. I think currently, if they need to be really worth the sauce if you're going to play them, and they need to be really good if you're going to jump through any hoops. And so uh, these cards are just not worth that. Hard disagree on the Headless Rider. Uh, first of all, I misread this card. Uh, it, Mason did a challenge to us to not misread our cards during the Crimson Vow set review. And fun fact, I did not mis misread any of my cards during the Crimson Vow set review. I did misread Mason's card and thought this card was just a straight up way better version of other cards that we have had. I didn't realize it had the zombies clause. That being said, this card makes zombies possible in standard. Uh, I don't know if you've played that deck yet, Mason. That deck's insane. I've had... Oh, is it? I'm unimpressed when I played a couple. Oh, yeah. The deck is absolutely busted. Uh, it has matchups against mono green, mono white, and the, the blue red deck. Uh, I don't think that it could have taken second in that event without that, but like... The, the deck is gas. I, I don't know how to fix the problems with the deck. I think that that is kind of what you're alluding to, where it's like it has two different, very different game plans, right? This aggressive game plan and this like recursion game plan. But I think the truth is, yeah. that, is that it's just a recursion deck that like can sometimes choose somebody out. And I think that as the format grows, Headless Rider will actually get better. Okay, well, let's hop into with hindsight how we do these sort of things. And let's start with Abe with Midnight Hunt. And we are going to kind of move through these. We actually all agreed across the board here that if we could pick the two hits, we would say Lear was one of them and that uh, Memory Deluge was the other card that went from being this like, oh, it's kind of a cool flashback like uh, like draw to to a card that has seen play in Modern, replaced Factor Fiction in that format, um, and really just shown up huge. Uh, the, the card is just a lot better than even it looked at face value. Um, and for me, I would say that my sleepers are uh, Florian, which has been a huge supporter for the black red mid range decks. They're kind of fringe of an existence. Also the Jun mid range decks is a creature that generates some card advantage. Um, very innocuous. Cause it, it looks like there's a lot of steps to it, but in the way those decks play is an effect they really want and really make good use out of um, a card that I think no one was talking about for constructed implications really. Uh, that that really is performed and um, galvanic iteration which i think everyone wrote off as being a casual card a commander card not for your standard decks and your constructive play and you know is just part of what is considered by many the biggest problem with standard is forking galvanic iterations and forking um, unexpected windfalls and, and just the value that it generates with some of these spells and how it lets you completely take them over and turn it around so 
uh, yeah, those those are mine. Like I said, all of our hits the same for this set. My sleepers were Iteration as well, and then Storm of the Festival. to kind of talk about these cards, but uh, yeah, Iteration just did not get talked about really, and I think we missed our. Are they, I may not miss a lot of people underestimated copying itself than copying the follow up thing actually being a thing. Another example of like the juice has really worth the squeeze. And it is actually worth it with this sort of card. Also, because you can break it up in parts. Spencer, what about you? I, I don't know if this was one of Mason's hits, but Reckless Stormseeker did a lot of work in Standard uh, in its time so far in Midnight Hunt. I, I don't know that I heard anybody other than Mason talk about it, but the card the card put in freaking work. Um, and then a card that I heard actually nobody talk about that's put in a ton of work uh, is Adeline Resplendent Cathar. Holy mm-hmm. crap. That card is so good. Yeah, the the card's insane. Just a complete sleeper in the format. So yeah, those are those are my two. Sorry, in a format already so long on white three drops for one to come out that immediately, you know, makes people not always playing Force Godclave Apparition, not always playing Four Elite Spellbinder, that it's contending with these really powerful cards that we see come set after set in this in that mana cost. Absolute uh blow away card. So I I felt like on the hits, by the way, just to kind of add to that really quickly, that Memory Deluge surprised me a lot, and I just wanted to touch on that. Like, there were so many other cards in contention for this slot. I think even in, like, week two of that card coming out, like, we talked about, like, splitting Memory Deluge. And, like, I've been adding Memory Deluges to my deck uh, constantly. Fun fact, Deek Through Time is a really good card. And the fact that, like, you get... The front half to be like, you know, look at the top four, put two into your hand, and the, the second half is dig through time is like kind of busted. It it just it it plays out better than you would think. Yeah, I think Hall of the Storm Giants has a bit to do with that too. That that even comes up in modern where the turn you're at seven mana to make it so that it's bad for your opponent to attack into your seven seven, that you just get to flash it back when they don't. They're like damned if they do, damned if they don't. And so yeah. Uh, it really, it really is a lot easier to cast both halves than than it maybe seemed at first. So, fun fact: um, I actually still like playing the uh, Giants Saga, the blue red one, because of this card. The blue red decks, I think it's still good. Uh, um, hey, what about you with Crimson Vale? Once again, we agree across the board about the hits. Um, Thalia and Hullbreaker Horror are the two biggest hits. None of us really talked about Hullbreaker Horror. That's not true. Um, you actually had it on your list. It just wasn't in your hits or sleeper ape. Yeah, I kind of wish it wasn't hopeful about it because <laughs> uh, it's kind of done some uh, some pretty messed up things in the format. Just being another powerful sub mana thing, especially one that doesn't get you know taxed by Redain, doesn't fall victim to the same kinds of things that Epiphany does, kind of forks you in that way. Uh, the card just has become a format definer, probably one of the only cards people really seek after in the set Crimson Vows. I've learned from drafting for the rares over, uh, over the last few months. If you've played a lot of primeval titan uh you you've had a moment where somebody's like that card has trample why does that card have trample it's like a thing that you've heard a human say when you attack with it and the this card is like why does it have flash like why <laughs> is a thing that yeah uh, why is it a flash why can't it be countered yeah why can it protect itself by bouncing it yeah in a, it's in a, just like why can it bounce spells off the stack why can it do all of these things is uh, is definitely a feeling I've had playing against that card in limited. And so uh, yeah. in standard as well, it's just, it's just a powerhouse and uh, really came out swinging as I said, hard to not say it's a hit. Uh, my sleepers for Crimson Vow 
were Blood Tide Harvester, which took vampires from kind of like a Mimi tribal deck to something that people do actually play. I see on the ladder. Really, it really just enables like kind of the core of that curve in a way that I didn't expect. And um, Concealing Curtains, which also was part of the the mono black decks uh, Resurgence and Rise. So, uh, sorry, my sleepers. Why well, it's it's interesting as we talk about Wash Away being so good, but I, I put Wash Away. I feel like some people. There's still some debate on that versus the Fortel one and that sort of thing. And then Hopeful Initiate, like uh, I mentioned, that card is quite good and has done a lot of work in Historic, uh, the Historic Humans deck. Uh, Pre-Luminar Gasparate nerf, that was a really powerful interaction. Uh, still very good, but just a, a card that's been quite good and I'm sure we'll continue to see playing standard. What For what you, it's worth, Hopeful Initiate is like insane in the Mono White Mirror if you play it late. So, like, if you're playing a non-exile version versus an exile version, if you make them exile your stuff with their portable holes first, and then you play your hopeful initiates after that, I found that's a great way to win the mono-white mirror. How about you and your sleepers, uh, Spencer? So, I have, I have two sleepers. Uh, Volatile uh, Arsonist is one of my sleepers. I think this card is super underrated. Depending on the format, it is probably better than Goldspan Dragon. I know that's kind of a hot take, but like, I do think it's that good. And then Felstinger is a card that I just did not expect to fall in love with. This is like the most clunky three mana dirtily card that I've ever seen. But like I've killed opponents with the effect. It, it's funny that you have not enjoyed that zombies deck Mason, because it feels like the opposite of the kind of deck that I would enjoy and the exact type of deck that you would enjoy. Sometimes things happen. Yeah. They just don't hit for the right person. They hit for the other. And Felstinger, um, it sees play in a few decks. The Zombies standard deck. The, But also, it, I've seen it see play in Alchemy uh, in the Black-Red deck. The two pretty great success. I, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the card. I don't know what it reminds me of, but, like, the fact that this thing has Death Touch is... Probably the entire thing holding this card together, but I think it was a complete sleeper and becomes like kind of like one of those like burning tramus here where like sure it's fine, like a role player that you didn't expect. To me, it felt like it was one of those cards. Where it was like this is gonna be one of my best cards in my sealed pool or a card I'm gonna pick highly and draft because it's a lot of value. And uh, yeah, seeing that seeing that kind of effect really work its way into standard and show up and still be valuable in that kind of deck just because it does all of these things well enough. Uh, like sometimes you just do want to turn a creature into two cards or sometimes you do want to, you just need those last two points damage or the three, two death touch is good. Um, yeah, it's definitely a card that I think looks fine enough. And like, you'd maybe consider playing like you definitely consider playing in a low for power format, like draft or limited, but, uh, not, not one that you would normally expect to show up in, uh, in standard. So can I ask you guys an honest question? Was I right about Thalia or was I too intense? You're, you're too intense, I think so. I think you're. Too, I, th I think you just don't enjoy that play pattern a whole bunch. But I, I don't think it's been that big a deal. But I haven't played a, a lot of the format, but I've played a good amount of alchemy, and I've played against that card a fair amount there, and it's not been a problem at all. In fact, I find myself cutting it from my sideboards a lot. I find it ineffective at doing what I want. That is obviously different than standard. And in my yeah. small experience of having standard, I have found it to be just not an issue. Like it throws you off a little bit, but it's no worse than having a card with ward. You know what I mean? So, okay, that's my experience. What do you think, Gabe? But, um, 
Yeah, I'm I'm also not as not as anti-Thalia as you just in general. Um and I don't know, I think it's like it's kind of weird. I think that with uh the way that cards have been coming out where they've been putting emphasis on trying to make people play more than just creatures and premium spells and really diversify the kinds of cards you're putting in your deck and a more uh more of a focus on non-creature spells even inside of creature decks that adding Thalia has really added a a layer of like consideration to the format of when Thalia is really good, how do you construct your deck to not be weak to Thalia? And as much as in gameplay where Thalia can be a very frustrating card to play against, and I've definitely experienced that more than a fair share of times and how much it sucks like as a gameplay experience for you to not feel like you can cast your spells. I think that it does a lot of good invisibly to exist in the format. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, I understand where you're coming from in, in hating playing against the card and thinking that it's bad for it's bad for gameplay and not liking it. But I think that when you look at it, like all the way pulled back as far as you can, uh, at least as far as I can, uh, I don't see it as, as much problem as you do. Yeah. I, it's funny. I played more Thalia than I played against it. And I just, I don't know. I think, I think it's unfun. I, I, I don't know. I wish it wasn't in the format. Like I said, no one likes to play their taxes. It's not a fun yeah, part of the I game. Think... I say this about stealth video games all the time, but I'm like, the core mechanic of this game, because I hate stealth video games, is that we sit around and wait for other people to be in the place I need them to be so I can not be seen by them or whatever. This sucks. My least favorite things are waiting around for things outside of my control. So waiting around for someone, some random computer-controlled thing to not be looking at me sucks. And in the same way, having to pay more mana for the stuff you want to cast sucks. But... It keeps people honest. It makes people play more creatures and, you know, do things to not to avoid paying that tax. So it's uh, it's definitely a double-edged sword with the effects it has in the format, and it's not for everyone, and it's frustrating. So I don't, it's think, funny. I don't think you're crazy for feeling that way, you know? But I, The two hits are both just super frustrating cards for the format, I think. <laughs> we all have the same two hits, and they're all just like, yeah, this just sucks. Like, I wish this wasn't here. Like, if we removed Holbreaker, Horror, and Thalia, I think we'd all, like, as a cast, would be happy. Yeah, maybe Holbreaker Horror is even part of a reaction to Thalia, you know? Like, why do they even need to play this creature in the Epiphany decks? It's true, because, like, Epiphany becomes so much worse when Thalia exists. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Constructed Chrism. The show will always be free, but if you want to support the show directly, you can go to patreon.com slash c. CMTG, get a lot of perks you can enter in those tournaments like we talked about last week with Kane. but you also get to ask us questions and Dilly G from Discord says, what's the best way to lose? Um, and I would say that is just, you know, a close game that you uh, played well in, you know, you did everything you could. I'll go next on this one. I think that like I talked about this on the Common Knowledge podcast that, that'll come out that I guessed on, but like I think a huge part of improving at magic is actually being okay with losing. You know, that's actually the reason that Smash Bros came up on that podcast that we talked about earlier in the show is that like at some point you just have to be okay with the fact that you're going to lose sometimes. Cuz if you're not this game is too frustrating to play. So, what is the best way to lose? Um I think it's just a game in which you learn something. Like if if you get, if you get to lose and you have a takeaway from that, I think that's a pretty big moment of improvement for you. And it's something that is going to help you long term. That that's a, that's a loss worth taking. Like in, in all honesty, like if you get to leave a match that you lost and be better at magic because of it, I, I think that's the best way to lose. 
you know, it makes those moments in Magic that are frustrating, like Mulligans or Mana Screw or Mana Flood harder. But I think the moments where you win through those things offset that, right? Like if you win through Mana Screw or you win through Mana Flood and you get to, to learn, like, how do I combat this thing? It's th- It's kind of the same thing. You know, winning through adversity and losing through adversity are are kind of symmetrical. I, I, there's a really good moment in... It's actually the moment where former co-host Matt Kling said, Spencer, I just realized you're really good at magic. Uh, he watched me play a game where I got stuck on three lands um, and, like, won a game. It was, like, a, a, a deck where with run the last troll and like I revolved my game around resolving Thrun, attacking with Thrun, protecting Thrun. And he's like, that was, that was, you, you did what you could do to win the game. And the moments where you're going to lose, lose because you didn't think of your ways out and learn from those mistakes. Don't lose because you gave up. That, that would be my answer. What about you, Ip? Uh The best way to lose is when your teammates in the team event, are winning their matches and are going to win. Dude, That's I did that. I did, I've done, I I played a GP in a team event where I did not finish a match. Yeah, I've I've definitely had my I've had multiple events where we've come very close to cashing where I've gone like three and like I, there was one where I, I scrapped for like all seven match points I earned in that tournament and I went like three like 10 and 1 or something. It was terrible. Uh, but you know, those are good ones to win where or good, good ones to lose. Ones where uh, you learn something very immediate are great ways to lose. Like, I don't know if you ever lost game two because you made a bad sideboarding decision and you were like kind of close when you were sideboarding for game two. And then you go, okay, that was really bad. And now you can adjust when you still have still have a, a place to go with it. And uh, I would say the next best way to lose is uh, in a way that you're having fun doing it. You know, if, uh, if you can learn to love the losses you take in Magic, I think you will go a lot farther than if you don't and you'll avoid burnout and you know, you'll, you'll have a great time with it. So half the games you play around, even if you're even one of the best players, 40% of the games you play, you'll lose. So thank you so much for the free one of those 40%. Yeah. Thank you so much for the question. DM me. We'll hook you up with some Oasis game store credit or a promo from Oasis games. Thank you so much to our sponsor that sponsors every question on this podcast, whether it's a Patreon question, a Twitter question, or if you just leave a YouTube comment, uh, Oasis Games is going to hook you up and we're going to help them out doing that. So thank you so much. That's going to do it for this week's episode. If you want to find us on social media, you can, of course, always find us on Twitter at CCMTG. That is the channel's Twitter account. But you can find us each on individual and other places. You can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. You can find me on YouTube at Mason Clark MTG. And you can find me at twitch.tv slash the mason clark and if you want to get a mana traders discounted code you have to check out that stream because maybe there's something cool there go take a look at that abe if someone wants to find you where can they go uh twitter.com slash more no things uh dm still looking for coaching uh you know i tweet occasionally usually about things so spencer how about you yeah you can find me on twitter at spencer h uh you can find my other podcast over on uh, at need to nerd pod on twitter but on the he's game media youtube channel you can find me lurking in the comments of the uh 
Mason Clark YouTube channel at He's a Game Media. I think that he's creating amazing YouTube content. I really appreciate it. I love what he's doing over there. Uh, and you should definitely check it out. You can also check out the rest of the network. There's so many good things. It was really cool. Uh, I heard that Homeward Path is multiple people's favorite podcast over the last week. Uh, you know, we got one of the best drafting podcasts in drafting archetypes. And I, in all honesty, like with all the podcasts calling it quits, guys, we might be the best constructed podcast again. Like, let's go. Always have been. Always will be. Let's go. Thank you all so much for listening. See you all next week for the post-Christmas episode of CCMTG.